evening. And once again, if you are in that season, uh, you're struggling, you're discouraged, I pray that this psalm will be an encouragement and help to you tonight. Psalm 63, notice the very first statement, and then we'll pause for a few moments and catch ourselves up. The Bible says, O God, thou art my God. That is what the emphasis of this psalm, that's where it rests. That's where it hinges. That's where the entire theme of this psalm, as it continues on, is found in those words, thou art my God. Now, as you think about David here, as you think about what David was going through, David's going through one of those rough times within his life. It seemed as though that was for a large majority of David's life, the theme of his life. On the run, uh, being chased, trying to get from, uh, you know, uh, harm's way, uh, death is lurking around the corner, and he's on the run, he's, he's in that season once again. Another tough time, if you would. And as you think about this, this season that he has found himself in, he may even have been knocked down, but it was going to take a lot to knock him out. It was going to take him a lot to just make him quit. It was going to take a lot in David's life for him just to say, you know what, God, I'm done with this. I'm done with you. I'm done with your will. I'm done with your ways. It was going to take a lot more than that. You think about Paul for a few moments. Paul, as you study the writings of Paul and you study his life, you'll find that even in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul goes on to make a statement as he is referencing to some of the, the, the issues of life and the struggles of life. As he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, we are troubled on every side. So think for a few moments. We're going to walk through this verse. We are troubled on every side. Every which way you turn, there's trouble. There's problems. There's trials. There's issues. He says we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Paul's saying, hey, if there was every bad thing that could take place, every bad thing that will take place, it's, it's present right now. But notice what he says at the very end of 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, verse number 9. He says, cast down, but not destroyed. What he's saying there is, I may be hurt, I may be struggling, I may be limping, I may be just making it, but I'm not done yet and God's not finished yet. And as you begin to think about your own life and the seasons of life, there are struggling seasons, there are blessed seasons, there are mountaintop seasons, there are valley seasons. David has found himself in a valley season here. He's found himself struggling, he's found himself on the run, he's found himself once again uh, with trouble around every single corner. And he's distressed, he's perplexed, he's, he's uh, trying to figure it all out, but he's not knocked out yet. As a matter of fact, in this psalm right here, you'll find that instead of griping about anything, you see a lot of praise that takes place. You see a lot of rejoicing, as a matter of fact. You see a lot of emphasis on the good things that are taking place, even in the midst of what he is facing. Now, to catch you up, to help you to understand right here, David here had been driven from the throne by Absalom. As he is being thrown away, as he is being chased away, he's knocked down. But again, it was going to take a lot more than Absalom, his son, to, to, to knock him out. It was going to take a lot more than Amasa, his nephew, to knock him out. It was going to take a lot more than Ahithophel, the traitor, who was once a friend that we referenced to a couple of weeks ago, to knock him out. And so David's going to continue pressing on. And you might be here tonight and you say, Pastor, I, I want to be honest with you. I'm ready to just be done. I'm ready to call it quits. I'm ready to just say enough with this. There's got to be so much more. Maybe you're even looking at those who curse God, those who hate God, and you think they've got it all made. Well, if you go all the way to the book of Revelation, you'll find out they don't have it made. 
As a matter of fact, if you are a child of God tonight, then you're a victor. And you can find great joy in these words that are found in Psalm 63. Look with me for just a moment in verse number 9. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. There it is. David knew the end story. He knew the end of the results. He says in verse 10, They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. But then he again rejoices in verse number 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory, but the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. So in this psalm here, as you walk through Psalm 63, you see some attributes in the life of David and many others that we'll look at tonight is how do they keep going even in the midst of trials or even in the midst of those who are persecuting them or mocking them, those who are trying to stop the work of God. What what begins to take place in their lives? And so notice, if you would, three things this evening that ought to be present within the child of God, not just because of hard times, not just because you're trying to avoid hard times, because life happens. Hard times are always going to be there. But what ought to be present in the child of God's life? Notice with me in verses 1 through 3 what you see. Oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee, my soul thirsted for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. The first thing you see in these first three verses is you study the life of David and you come to realize what is taking place within his life is you begin to see that he is very passionate for God. There ought to be a passion within the child of God for the things of God, but ultimately for the Lord himself. We are very passionate people about certain things. Every single one of you, whether you are an extrovert or an introvert, whatever you might be, every single one of us tonight, we are passionate about specific things. Some of you right this very moment are passionate maybe about uh, certain uh, hobbies within your life. Some of you might be artists and you're very passionate about it. Some of you maybe are very uh, very in tune with politics. You enjoy talking politics and you're passionate about politics. For some, they might be passionate about sports. For some, they might be passionate about family or adventures or whatever the case might be. But every single one of us in here tonight, we're passionate about something. Now you might sit there and you say, no, I'm going to be honest with you. I am not passionate about anything. Well, let me invite you to find something to be passionate about. Good night. I mean, enjoy life a little bit, all right? But find something to be passionate about. But as you think about the psalmist here, he's passionate about God. Notice what he says right here. In verse number one, he says, Oh God, thou art my God. He begins to, to point us to understand he's loyal. In this one statement, it's a very telling statement. Thou art my God. He says, there's no place for idol worship in my life. There's no place for anyone else within my life. Thou art my God. You see, the sad reality within many Christians' lives is that we claim to be Christians, but God is not God of our lives many times. We have many other idols that are sitting right before us, many other idols that are in the way of God being truly Lord of our lives. And he says right here, O God, thou art my God. He goes on, he says, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. In these verses of verse number one, when he says my soul thirsteth for thee, he's speaking of a longing, if you would. He's longing to not only be in the presence of the Lord, but he's longing to be in the house of God here. You see, he's been driven from this. You can relate to this because in 2020, 
Our world was shaken by the news of a virus that had entered in called COVID. And you know this to be true, that when all of a sudden the doors of the church were closed, that all of a sudden you began to desire to be in the house of God a little bit more. You ought to have, at least. I know that it killed me whenever we couldn't be in church with our church family and spend time with our church family. It drove me crazy whenever we couldn't be there and there was only up to 10 of us allowed in an auditorium to record a service and look at a screen and all that. I couldn't, I couldn't stand it because this is something that we get to do together. And you begin to think about that time whenever you weren't able to go into the house of God for just a season because of that. Well, this is exactly what David is facing right here. He says, my soul thirsted for thee, my flesh longeth for thee. He's longing here. You see, this longing speaks of all of his desires. His desires were all founded upon the Lord and the Lord's dealings within his life. And then it says a struggle of the Christian life is where we find the balance of living life and, and we begin to think that this is what we ought to do and this is where we ought to go and this is how we ought to live. But we haven't asked the question, what would God have for me to do? How would God have for me to live? How would God have for me to approach this? And so all of this within his life, as he makes the statement, thou art my God, but then he says, my soul thirsted for thee. He's speaking of a longing here. This is a desire of his, but he was also devoted to the Lord. Uh, David was not one, and we're going to see also in a couple of others' lives that there are some people in Scripture, they didn't, they didn't play the game of being a Christian. And they weren't about it. You know, there, there have been times whenever, uh, you, you know, I, there were a couple people that I grew up with in Indiana. I remember there was this one guy, he was in eighth grade and he was probably, I mean, had to have been six, eight in the eighth grade and I went to middle school with him. And, uh, we were moving during my eighth grade year and I remember this. He was on the basketball team. I mean, a big old boy. And he had grown up in Chicago and he moved to, to Indiana, Columbus, Indiana. And I remember hearing this statement. I remember it so vividly as he was arguing with someone in the hallway. In our hallways, we went at the time, it was an old middle school. It had been around for a long time. They actually tore it down and put a new uh, facility up just a couple of years ago. But I remember it was a spiral staircase to get to the very top, all the way to the top, about five floors. And that was the middle school that we went to. And I remember he had gotten into an argument with one of the boys uh, in the hallway at this time. And, and mind you, he'd grown up in a, a little bit of a, a difficult situation as he began to talk about uh, his upbringing in Chicago and some of the, the issues and his family and all that. And there was this one boy who began to point his finger in his face, eighth grade. And I remember it so vividly. He looked at me, he says, I'm not about all that. What he was saying is either get your finger out of my face. I will get your finger out of my face. And as you think about this for just a few moments, this statement that he is making, Oh God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee, my soul thirsted for thee, my soul longest for thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. His desires were all surrounded by this, his devotion to the Lord. He was not about just playing the part, if you would. One of my favorite passages of Scripture that is found in all of Scripture, you'll find it in the Kings. You walk through the Kings, there's a statement that is found. It's a challenge to us. It's play the man. Play the man. And it's a challenge from the king to his son. And as he is making this statement, he is very simply saying that, hey, don't just play games. Don't just have a good time. Don't just talk a big talk. Don't just do these things. It's time to play the man. It's time to be a man. And as you think about that within our society, I think that that is something that needs to be, once again, discussed. 
We don't have men being men within our society any longer. We don't have men leading the home. We've got a lot of men playing the part. We've got a lot of homes that are playing the part. And David was not one who was willing to just play the part. It's eating him up that he cannot be in the house of God doing the things that he knows he ought to be doing. But he wasn't going to be knocked out. You go on and you study the life of David, you'll find that he sees his way through. But in this one statement, as he says, my soul thirsted for thee, my, my flesh longeth for thee. Not only was his desire there and his devotion to God, but he was very desperate. Very desperate. I love going and studying some of the gospel records because in the, the gospel records, you see a people, whenever they come in contact with Jesus, they're very desperate. Zacchaeus, desperate. The woman with an issue of blood, desperate. Go and study the disciples. You'll find that in many occasions they were desperate. Think about Peter for just a few moments. Peter, as he is approached by the Lord, and the Lord says, cast your net back into the water. Peter knew what he was doing. He was a great fisherman. Peter knew the trade. He, He knew the trade well. He was a master fisherman. He knew all of these things, but he was desperate. And so in this one occasion where the Lord says, throw your net, he says, nevertheless, Lord, And he obeys. Why? Because he was desperate. You see, one of the things that I pray we never get over is that we never get past being desperate for God to do something. We need to get back to being desperate for God to move in our nation and get a hold of our lives and get a hold of our families. You know, as I think about my children, I think about some of the things that they're beginning to ask in their upbringing. I'm desperate for my children to get saved. I'm desperate for my children to grow up in a godly home. I'm desperate for my children to grow up and understand the purpose and the meaning behind serving the Lord and living a life that is given to the Lord. I'm desperate about those things because we need a generation to raise up and say there is a God and He is not only a God, He is my God. That is what we need in this nation, but we're not desperate anymore. And David here, he says, thou art my God. His passion is seen here. Not only do you see his longing, but what does he want to see? David doesn't want to just see a provision here. He doesn't want to just see a way here. He doesn't just want to see the Lord bring him through it. Notice what he says in verse number two. He says to see thy power and thy glory. Man, there's something about seeing God do something that only God can do and that he would get all the glory and it's only because of his might. It's nothing we can do. David says right here as he is emphasizing his loyalty to God and his longing for God, he is now looking to God as he says to see thy power and thy glory. I love these verses as they lay a foundation here because in verse number one, you begin to realize as he makes this statement, a dry and thirsty land where no water is. He's speaking of where he was at this one time. And every single one of us have been there. That place, we don't want to be that dry place. And he makes that statement where he was, as he says, a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And what is he wanting here? He's wanting to see the power and the glory of God. Let me ask you this question. As you walk into the house of God on a Sunday morning, on a Sunday evening, on a Wednesday, in a missions conference, in a youth meeting, in a revival meeting, do you walk in with an anticipation, an expectation, a desire, walking in understanding that this isn't just another service. This could be the service. Walking in saying, God, do something. Lord, as I walk into the house of God, Lord, speak to my heart. Lord, change my life. 
As you go and you walk through church history, and we look back and we make references to certain revivals that took place, but when those people walked into that meeting, can I remind you, that wasn't a planned meeting that they said, revival's coming out of this. No, no, no. They just got on their face and begged to God, Lord, do something. It wasn't just something where they just said, hey, we're going to have revival tonight. No, no, no. They didn't even actually, as a matter of fact, in the moment, they were just getting alone with God and begging God and pleading with God in those very moments. I don't know where it was. It might have been in one of the services recently. It might have been in a Sunday school hour. I can't remember when I made reference to it. But oftentimes we place such an emphasis on the style of preaching that has to take place because we say the only way God is going to move is if that style of preaching is taking place in the pulpit. Can I share with you, one of the greatest moves of God took place when a man stood behind a pulpit. He didn't even preach his thoughts. He didn't have anything special to say. He was very monotone, but he opened the word of God and began to read scripture. And all of a sudden, God began to deal with the people and the people began to weep. I was listening just the other day to a message that Leonard Ravenhill was preaching. And in the midst of him preaching that message, as he was pleading with the people, you can hear the audience and the congregation weeping and pleading and begging. As a matter of fact, it was said that all of a sudden the people began to come down to the altar and he did not even preach any longer. In that one sermon, he just said, oh, yes, Lord, just like that. Because he didn't have to do anything because God had already been doing it. You see, listen to me now. This book is still alive. This book still has the, sa- the power to save. It still has the power to change lives. And he understood this as he says, I want to see thy power and thy glory. What did he want? You say as you walk through this psalm and you understand the background of what is taking place, how was he even able to say these things? How is he still able to worship? Notice in verse number three why he's still able to worship. He says, because thy loving kindness is better than life. Thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. I had the opportunity, uh, as a matter of fact, my mind goes to many occasions. But a couple of months ago, I had the opportunity to sit into uh, the room. Miss Kelly and I and the kids went to visit with somebody. As we began to sit and just fellowship for just a little while, the testimony of that individual, they began to share their testimony. As they began to share their testimony, they began to talk about everything, not just the good times in their lives, but the bad times and how the Lord brought them through all of that and how the Lord was revealing things and dealing with them and helping them. And I never sensed any bitterness I never sensed any questioning of what God allowed happening in within that individual's life. For 20 minutes, I sat there in the chair and I didn't say a word, just listening as the testimony was being shared. And as the testimony was being shared, you might pause at certain events within that individual's life and you will ask, as I've asked many times, how in the world did you get through that? How in the world are you still here? How, how are you able to praise the Lord? couple of about a year ago there was a young lady who was about to get married and the weekend before she was about to get married her uh, fiance collapsed and died within her arms the very next sunday she was found in church singing with the choir and singing a special in that service and praising god how, how does that take place how can you you can't fathom but as i've realized within many of our lives if we'll just pause 
And in each of the seasons of our lives, if we will recognize this right here, thy loving kindness is better than life. You see, later on here in a few moments, in verse number 8, notice what he says, My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. That statement, followeth hard, speaks of being glued or cleaving to. He's reiterating already what he has already said in verses 1 through 3. But there is a key statement found in the midst of this psalm that many times we all struggle with. And that is found in verse number six when he says this, when I remember thee. When I remember thee. He says, upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. The psalmist is a very passionate individual. I wonder tonight, have you lost your passion for God and the things of God, the will of God, the ways of God within your life? Have you lost a passion for the Word of God and how it really has transformed and changed your life? Because I know the testimony of all of us is we would not be here if it was not for God. But have you lost a passion for this? Have you lost a passion? Oh, it's easy to talk about sports. It's easy to talk about politics. It's easy to talk about this hobby, that hobby. Look, I'm guilty of it just as much as anyone else in this this auditorium tonight. But are we guilty of losing our passion for the Lord and the Word of God and the ways of God that He would have for us to go? I was asked a question just the other day whenever it comes to the ways of God and why do we do this and why do we do that? And there are many times in people's lives where they begin to think that God doesn't allow things in Scripture as He begins to deal with certain subjects because He doesn't want us to have any fun. Can I just share with you? I'm having the most fun I've ever had serving Jesus. I don't, I don't miss this. I don't miss that. I don't miss what could have been because I got the best of the best when I said, Lord, here's my life. I laid it down on the altar and I've been able to just serve the Lord. And every day I wake up and I get to thank the Lord for another opportunity to live. Notice what the psalmist says, because in verse number two, he says to see thy power and thy glory. In verse number three, he says, because thy loving kindness is better than life. You see the passion for God. Number two, you see praise to God. Praise to God. As you think about some things that ought to be present within our lives, you ought to have a passion for the Word and for the Lord to work in our lives and for the Lord Himself. But you ought to give all praise to Him tonight. In verse number 4, the Bible says, Thus will I bless thee while I live. There it is. While I live. What an opportunity. Can I ask you the question? I asked myself as I was sitting over there just going over my notes. I asked the question, what am I going to do while I live? What am I going to do while I live? Look with me for just a moment in the book of Nehemiah because I love this book so much. I love the principles that are found. I love the emphasis that is found. Go with me for just a few moments, if you would, to chapter number six. And then we'll back up to another chapter. Thinking on this one question, what am I going to do while I live? If you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, you're aware that in chapter number one, the news are brought to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is confronted with a problem in the midst of that problem. He doesn't take it to the king. He begins to pray and he begins to plead. He begins to weep, begins to mourn certain days, which is not just a few days. It's not just a a Saturday to a Saturday, but it speaks of months, if you would. He's waiting for God to do something. Finally, he's given an opportunity and he takes that opportunity. Time and time again, discouragement is right there at the door. Trying to discourage the people, trying to discourage the work. Notice in chapter number six what is said. Now it came to pass when Sinbalad and Tobiah and Geshem and the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, that there was not a, no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. A little disclaimer there in verse number one. The Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together. 
Some one of the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me mischief. So notice here the question is being posed, or rather the, the, the invitation is being posed here to, to come and to, to let's meet for just a few moments. Now I imagine Nehemiah in chapter number one as he's waiting for God to, to give an answer and he's still waiting and still waiting. The king looks at him and says, your countenance has never been this way within my presence. What in the world is going on? And at this one moment, he doesn't speak to the king. He begins to cry out to the Lord, asking and pleading with God, Lord, if this is the opportunity, let me take it. So Nehemiah is aware that you only get one time. You only get one life. There's no time to waste it. There's no time to give ear to this. There's no time to bicker about this. There's no time to, 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 to answer all the, the silly questions. As a matter of fact, Paul deals with that. There's not enough time. There's too much to be done. Verse number three, and I sent messengers unto them saying, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? You know what he's very simply saying? I ain't got time for y'all. I got too much going on. I, I don't have time for this silliness. I don't have time for this, this, this pettiness. I don't have time for all this to take place. I don't need to take away from the, 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 the work of God moving forward to spend time with you two. I, I don't have time for all that. Back up for just a moment, if you would, to chapter number four. Chapter number four, notice what the Bible says. Nehemiah is encouraging the people. You know, one of the great things about Nehemiah is not only was Nehemiah great with his hands, but he also was a great encourager. And he says right here in verse number 14 of chapter number four, and I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, be not ye afraid of them. Speaking of the enemies. The enemies, if you remember, were already trying to bring up all of what had already taken place. They're aware that they failed in some areas. But isn't that just like the enemy? The devil is great at reminding us at all the times in which we've failed. He's great at bringing out the past and all the failures within our lives. But notice what Nehemiah says right here in verse number 14, right in the middle, because this is where, again, we find it in Psalm 63. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. You know, I have many motivations, and I think about my children, and I think about my wife, I think about this church, I think about those that I have conversations with, I think about some individuals that were children at one time, and now they're in college that I still communicate, and how they, they might look up to me, they might ask for encouragement, they might be someone that I'm mentoring, or whatever the case might be, and I have a lot of, of ammunition to keep me going. But you know what? I've realized that if all of that drives me, but not my simple love for the Lord, then I've missed it. If I can't just be driven for the simple fact that God is worthy, if I have to be driven only because that I, I think my children need me, no, 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 because I'm driven because of God, I recognize my children need me. I recognize that those things need to be done. I recognize that my wife needs me to lead. I recognize that I need to lead in a right way. Not because of them do I love the Lord, but because I love the Lord, I am then able to lead and love them. You see, in verse number uh, six of this one verse, as you walk down in Psalm 63, he says, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. In verse number four, five and six and seven and eight, you see praise being pointed to God. Notice how he prays in verse number four. Back up rather to verse number three, because it concludes with this. My lips shall praise thee. 
Verse number four, he says, I will lift up my hands in thy name. There are some times whenever there, there are events that take place in your life and you're listening to a testimony, you're singing or whatever the case may be, and you can't express with your mouth what you want to say. Oh, with a raised hand, how much that says about how good our God is. Thinking about songs, sometimes there are times whenever a special might be being sung or a choir special or a hymn being sung. And there are times whenever there might be a specific line within that song where it's emphasizing something that is so powerful. And all of a sudden hands go up. Why? Because we recognize just how good he is and he is due all praise. And you begin to see how he prays, but you also see when he prays. He says in verse number four, thus will I bless thee while I live. Can I ask you this question again? What are you doing with the life that you are living? What are you doing? We see the motive for praise in verse number five. My soul shall be satisfied. You know why our soul is satisfied? When you are right with God, it's a pleasant thing. It's a good thing. It's a satisfying thing. As with morrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. You're not just saying, thank the Lord with a grudging spirit. No, you're truly saying it with a joyful attitude. As you walk through verse number six, you see the meditation of praise. As he says these words, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. In verses four on down, you begin to see him talking about all of this. And it comes to verse number six when he makes that mention of remembering I want to encourage you, one of the most powerful things that we have is the power of using our memory of what God has done. It's a powerful thing. Uh, there are times whenever you're, you're, you're thinking back within your life and you're thinking about the testimony of your life, you're thinking about others or whatever the case may be, and let's just put yourself in a situation where you're just having a conversation. I love whenever I'm sitting with seasoned pastors and preachers. And I remember many years ago, when I first moved here, I went to a preacher's meeting and there were some seasoned pastors that were just sitting there and they were just talking ministry. And I just sat there and I just listened because I was thinking, man, the wisdom here, the the knowledge and the understanding of what God has done in their lives. And I'm just listening and thinking about that. But they were just meditating and rehearsing all of what God had been doing all along in their lives. There are times in my own life whenever I have certain moments that I'll go back to and I remember this statement in verse number six when I remember thee and I'll think back on what God has done in my life when I remember how good God has been. I can go back all the way to whenever at the time I was angry with my parents for moving from Columbus, Indiana to Columbus, Georgia, but when I remember what God was doing behind the scenes. You see, in the present time, in the moments in which we're living, sometimes we don't always understand. We don't see the big picture sometimes. But then as we grow and we mature and we move into different seasons, you look back into different seasons and you remember and you say, you know what? There he was. He was behind the scenes doing everything. And at the time I was angry about that season, but now I look back and I rejoice in that season. And it's a confusing thing sometimes where the psalmist says, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. Speaking of being glued, speaking of cleaving to thy right hand, upholdeth me. He was knocked down, but he wasn't knocked out. You might be knocked down, but you're not knocked out. Verses 9, 10, and 11, we see the peace of God. 
But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. And they shall be a portion for foxes. Notice this statement. But the king shall rejoice in God. I have a, a, a bunch of shirts that I wear occasionally, and they, a couple of them were passed along to me. And one of my favorite shirts that I wear, it's, it's getting to the point where I'm about to have to buy another one of the exact same shirt, and it's a very simple statement. On the, state, the front of the statement, it says, the king is coming. And it's a conversation starter. For a period of time, I worked out over at the Planet Fitness on Madison Street, and it was right up from the house. And I remember walking in, and there was a, a lady who was always doing rehab in this facility. And her legs don't work properly. She has to be rolled around by a worker, and she is always in there trying to strengthen everything, and they're doing all of these rehab exercises. And I remember I was over there, and I was uh, doing some uh, just curling some dumbbells and all that. And she was on a, a bench right there and they were working with, you know, some mobility things. And she looked at me and I was wearing that shirt. The King is coming. And at the time that I was wearing that shirt, the King is coming. I have another hat that is also a hat that I've wore out and I need to get another one. And it, it just has three nails on it and it's called three nails. It says on the back of the hat. And she looked up at me and later through the conversation, I would found out that she is a, a Christian and she goes to church right around the corner at Hilldale and we got to talking, but she looked up at me and she says, tell me more about what you're wearing. What do you mean? I said, you're going to have to be a little specific. I'm sorry. I, I'm, the King is coming is speaking of the Lord and he's coming and it's just kind of a conversation starter. You have questions about that. She's sitting there. She says, Oh no, no, no. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I, I know exactly what that said. Your hats. I've never seen that. The three nails. I said, Oh, it's another conversation starter. It's a conversation starter because whenever people ask about that or they see the three nails, they see that it allows me to just lead into the gospel or lead into what Jesus has done in my life. And so through that conversation, we got to talking a little bit more and you could tell that, that, that all of a sudden as she began to talk about how good God is, now she, mind you, she's sitting in a wheelchair. Mind you, she has no mobility with her legs. But not one time did she gripe about that. No, the entire conversation, she was just thanking the Lord and praising the Lord and talking about how good God is and how much she loves her church family and how much she loves her church and how good the Lord has been in her life and just talking and talking and talking. If you notice the situation that David has found himself in, again, another one of those seasons of being on the run. Wondering. But he looks up and he says, Oh God, Thou art my can I encourage you tonight when you rest in the simple truth that if you are a child of God and God truly is Lord of your life and you are a child of God, then he's still good. He's still great. There's nothing you can look at and say, oh, God, you failed in this area. As a matter of fact, he's incapable of doing so. Last night, and I closed with this, in our evening school of the Bible, we were talking about situations of education and situations of being a, a teacher and methods of Bible teaching. And the greatest teacher we have is the Lord himself. And the greatest guide as you go and you study Psalm 119, verse 105, and it speaks of that lamp and that light. And he is our guide in our lives. And there might be times some of you like to go on certain excursions and you might find a, a trail guide. 
And I've seen it on the news before. I've seen it, uh, whether it's on the Facebook and those news that links or on the news, on the TV, whatever the case might be, about groups that have gone out and they got lost. But there's never been a time when you've called on God and Him being your guide, He looked or He responded by saying, you know what, I, I'm a little turned around. I don't, I don't know where we're at right now. I, I'll be honest with you, this has never happened before, but... I don't, I don't know what's coming next. I don't know where we're at. No, no, no. God has never said that. And he will never say that. He already knows what's in the future. And he's just waiting for us to continue walking faithfully step by step with this statement. Oh, God, thou art my God. Lord, we do thank you tonight. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, you've been so good to us. You've guided, directed. Lord, may it be something that we recognize and understand. Lord, may we find ourselves passionate once again about you, about your word. Lord, about your will and your ways. And Lord, may we walk with you. May we spend time praising you. And may we understand the peace of God because we can rest in you. Lord, I don't know if there are some that might be knocked down tonight. Lord, may we not allow ourselves to get knocked out. Help us, Lord, to get back up, keep pressing on, and stay faithful at. Lord, there's such a great work ahead. May we not give in to the temptations of the enemy as they try to discourage and disrupt. Help us tonight just to rejoice in who you are and how good you are. Thank you for it, Lord. Lord, in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, heads bowed, eyes closed. Maybe you want to find yourself at the altar. I know many are going through a lot right now, and you want to find yourself in prayer and just ask the Lord to continue to guide you through. Maybe you have some people you want to pray for, situations you want to pray about. Can I remind you, when I remember thee, when I meditate on thee, oh, the joy that comes out of it. Can I encourage you? Find yourself at the altar. Spend some time in prayer. There's some praying. Don't miss out.
Lord, we come to you tonight. Lord, we do thank you. Lord, I thank you for our church family. I thank you for what you're doing here. I thank you for the reminder in Scripture. Oh, God, thou art my God. Lord, help us to be reminded of that often. Lord, help us to reflect and rejoice. Lord, meditate on your goodness. Lord, help us to get passionate about you and your ways and your will for our lives. Lord, help us to praise you often. And Lord, may we rest in the peace of understanding, Lord, that you're always there. You're always good. You make no mistakes. We thank you for what you've done tonight. Pray that you be in many parts of the service. We'll thank you for it. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.